Hello and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we'll be joined by Charles McLaughlin, who is an experienced foreign policy practitioner and has a background in government, the private sector, and the nonprofit world. Charles began his career as a U.S. Army officer and served for a time in the Special Forces. Most recently, he served as Director of Strategic Planning at the National Security Council in the Trump administration and as Senior Advisor in the State Department's Office of Policy Planning. He was also Senior Advisor for National Security to the President and CEO of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We'll be joined by Jonathan Askinus, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Politics at the Catholic University of America, and whose work focuses on the intersections between the Republican tradition, national security, and technology. And I'll turn it over to him to ask the first question. So, Charles, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You know, you've, you've had a sort of long and illustrious career, and one of the interesting things to me about it is that so much about your background would sort of incline you to being a you know, card-carrying member of the, the establishment or the blob, so to speak. You know, background in a Cold War family, Army, Special Forces Service, you know, Harvard, MIT degrees, time in, in management consulting. Um, and yet it, it, it seems like, like they used to say the old the neocons back in the, in the 60s, you've been mugged by reality a little bit. So I'd love to I'd love to learn um, to, to learn more about your 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 story and what it has to tell us about the kind of arc of American foreign policy and these, these moments of realization you've had along your career that things were not as they appeared. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, especially uh, growing up in a sort of Cold War family, as you described it? Sure. Thanks. And uh, thanks so much for allowing me to be here. And uh, although maybe not so much for emphasizing the length of my career, the um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I was born in 1964. My some of my earliest memories are my dad going on to Vietnam. So my, I was an army brat. Uh, my dad uh, went off and he had a tour in Vietnam when I was an infant that I don't remember. And then another one when I was around five. And I remember him being gone for a year. And I remember that one year that I remember being a, a very big deal and pretty traumatic. So when I think of, you know, people in our current area who've been deployed four, five, six more years, it's unbelievable to me. And and not only the, the sacrifice of their own service, but what that means for their families and for their personal lives and, uh, and all of that, because it really left a mark on me. And so I, re- I can remember, you know, I remember the Humphrey Nixon election. <laughs> I mean, I was in kindergarten, but, but I was en- enough aware because it, it sort of touched my life. And I heard those conversations at home. And so uh, is a, one of the earliest questions that my mom remembers me asking is, you know, why was our revolution good, which I'd learned, and everyone else's seems to be bad because I'd heard on the news discussions about, about revolutions. And um, I, that remains a puzzle. I do believe our revolution was good and uh, uh, many other revolutions are good, but many were bad. And, and so how to sort out uh, the good from the bad. When I was uh, in early adolescence, we lived in Berlin in West Berlin. And so going through Checkpoint Charlie and, and going over to the other side for museums or other events was a normal part of my life, as was going to the other parts of the occupied zones. You'd go to the French zone for their commissary. You'd go to the English so the British zone to sit by the pool for tea and and these were sort of normal and seemingly never changing events like that that's how the world was it was always going to be that way 
And, um, but I did have a very tactile understanding of what was at stake in the Cold War by going over to East Berlin and seeing the differences um, and seeing, you know, the bullet marks on the wall that were left from the World War II and seeing the museum of the people who, uh, um, who had been shot when they were trying to escape. You know, I was, I did well in high school. I was pretty smart, um, uh, but too smart. And uh, so one of the reasons that I am, you know, as, as you portrayed me, <laughs> as you came in, as I tend to be kind of a contrarian and, and uh, whatever the environment is around me, I tend to buck up against it. And, uh, and that, I think that's a consistent theme. And so one of the ways I did that was uh, to kind of rebel um, against what every, all the other kids were doing who were off to college was I went to West Point. Um, I went to West Point for a lot of reasons, not mainly to be an army officer, um, for the challenge. There's a bit of glamour involved for, uh, um, to correct some of the deficiencies I'd, I'd, I'd seen in myself. And, uh, um, I continued my contrary in this there, but I had a great experience. So when I was a senior, I got to go to this reception. Uh, well, we, as West Point cadets were social aides for president Reagan's 40th anniversary of the, uh, uh, of the United Nations, uh, the UNGA celebrations. So, so in, so we were in the reception hall with Margaret Thatcher, uh, Helmut Kohl, Edward Shevardnadze, sitting and seeing a couch with uh, Zia of Pakistan and Rajiv Gandhi uh, talking to one another. All of these sort of events, Zhao Zhang from China, and sort of seeing this in front of me and sort of swearing to myself, this was not going to be the highlight of my life at age age twenty. So that was sort of the early part of my life. But it was also shaped by those who came before me. So my dad had been uh, uh, in Korea before I was born, not in the war, of course, but, um, but uh, you know, it is part of the uh, being stationed in Korea and talking about that. It very, uh, a very strong orientation toward Asia. My, my maternal grandfather had been in World War II in, at the tail end of the Second World War. And then during the Chinese Civil War, he had learned Chinese. He was a professor of French. The Navy taught him Chinese. So he translated for both Mao and Chiang Kai-shek um, during that period and uh, came from those stories. And then later he was recruited for um, sort of an education, uh, national security, short-lived national security agency under Averill Harriman and uh, was in Vietnam in the, uh, um, in the late Truman administration uh, to, um, uh, to assess what was going on there in uh, then Indochina. He, he uh, had dinner with um, with uh, foreign legionnaires in Tianmen Fu. Um, so uh, um, so all of this sort of shaping of my family and the experiences that we'd had. History history was not an academic subject. It was something I felt we were living through, and it was my turn to sort of live through it. Yeah, so um, you know, a- after your, your your time at West Point, you. Um you applied for and was selected for special forces. That was a time before the sort of rise of special operations culture and the kind of cultural dominance of special forces. Yeah. Um, what was that like? What was the, you know, what was the kind of cultural profile special operations at the time? And, and what was your, what were your experiences like in humanitarian interventions in the nineties? Cause, yeah. cause even if the army wasn't always deployed, you know, our special forces were very active at that time. So I went there. You can't go right into special forces. So my first assignment was uh, as an armor officer in the armored cavalry. So I was in the second armored cavalry regiment in uh, in Germany at the tail end of the Cold War. At that time, you know, served alongside uh, Captain H.R. McMaster and Lieutenant Mike Pompeo, my my West Point classmate, as well as several others. In fact, I, I chose that unit both because I had mentors, uh, retired 
Lieutenant General Ambassador Doug Lute and others who had been there. And I wanted to sort of follow that. And I also saw my classmates who I admired and I wanted to be with them. So I chose that unit and had an amazing experience. And I have very, very close uh, friends uh, from that time that uh, are among the closest in my life. It really shaped us. And then uh, partially because I was actually at our border camp on the East German border the day it opened. And so I really had a sense of seeing the world change before me. And then I was living in the city Bamberg, uh, Germany, beautiful old town. And shortly afterward, you know, that area was just flooded with East German cars and Trabants everywhere. And one day I, I was walking along the street and I saw a little Trabi, as we called them. And you looked in the window and on the dashboard was a sticker that had been there for some time that had an American flag and it said, God bless America. And I was really struck by that. But it also uh, sort of rocked my world in that um, I understood why East Easterners were coming West. I didn't understand why the traffic was going back to. I thought the East was yearning to be free and they would come East and why would they return home? Now, of course, back then, we didn't know how it was all gonna shape up. We didn't know this was a, this was a permanent situation and the Cold War was gonna end. We thought it could end at any time. Um, we didn't know if this was a feint by, uh, um, by the Soviets in the Warsaw Pact. And so, um, uh, but it, I really had to give it a lot of thought and understand that people, I, mean, I, was, I was living in this you know, idealistic world of abstract ideas about, about freedom and democracy and self-expression and uh, that that's what people yearn for. But then I saw, no, people are also yearning for fresh fruit and electronic goods and the 50 marks that the German government were giving um, East Germans when they came and visited and those sorts of things and really had to think hard about that and what that meant for human nature. I also remember being, you know, I'd run up to this castle in the city of Coburg, historic place, um, the day or two after it opened with one of the soldiers from my unit. And he looked out and he said, this looks like the last time that a society where it doesn't matter what car, kind of car you have matters, right? So now, of course, what he was saying wasn't exactly true, that the kind of car you had or whether you had a car in East Germany mattered a lot, but that he perceived this was the passing of an egalitarianism you know, as part of the passing of a lot of, of uh, a lot of tyranny as well, but um, that that he reflected on that, that that thought hadn't occurred to me, and I had to sort of let that rattle around my mind too. So all of these changes were taking place, and I thought going to special forces was the best way that I could uh, be in a position to sort of be captain of my own fate, um, have as much sort of outsized influence on events um, than being in the conventional military. And, and so, and that was the, uh, I think I got there in 92. And so there was a lot of uh, humanitarian activity. Um, a lot of starts and stops of various things that we might do, uh, evacuations at different places and others. Um, as a team leader, I was involved with, Bo Bosnia became the main focus. So uh, uh, initially it was sort of a search and rescue thing, supporting the United Nations, working with and understanding what the United Nations was doing. And then later I became a staff officer and probably the best thing I'll ever do in my life um, was I was uh, part of the uh, relief operations at the end of the Rwanda genocide and, uh, and part of a team where we can really say that we had a material contribution to saving, you know, somewhere well over 10,000 lives as a result. But at the same time, I recognized that when we were sent there, uh, we had a lot of ignorance about the situation. Uh, we didn't really understand, or I didn't understand that the camps that we were helping stop a cholera epidemic in were occupied mainly by uh, genocidaires and their families. The, um, 
that uh, um, so sort of sorting out good and bad and right and wrong, especially after thinking it through, working closely with the French at the time, the um, became uh, very, uh, you know, very interesting and sobering and uh, sort of the limits of an easy narrative, whether it's an easy narrative of, uh, you know, Muslim Bosniaks good and Bosnia serves bad or or the Hutu-Tutsi conflict or other things. Um, some things are clearly, you know, beyond the pale, but it's not a, it's not a, these conflicts are not people with white hats and people with black hats. And so it's sort of coming to terms with that. And then later I became a, uh, um, I started the process to become a Russian foreign area officer uh, with a focus on Russia. So uh, the army special forces program had taught me some Russian. And so I wanted more advanced study and uh, an experience. And that led me to be embedded with the Russian Brigade in Bosnia during the first year of I-4. Um, I got to really like the Russians as people. Um, prior to that, there was a lot of language drilling and being yelled at by, uh, by angry Russian teachers. <laughs> and uh, I didn't love it as much, but I got to really love them and the degree of interpersonal warmth in their culture that, that is far exceeds what we have. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know, most of us know Kind of Russia geeks who are who, who who love all things Russian, and that's because they've probably been invited into that circle of trust and experienced that interpersonal warmth, and uh, it's addictive once once you get it, and start and and uh, starting to see things through their eyes. So at this moment in history, Russia was really at its nadir. Um, it'd been humiliated, sort of under the in the Yeltsin years, and um, the Russian military people I worked with sort of really had a, a longing to be treated with respect. And after a long night with, with lots of vodka and um, singing songs and making pledges to one another, I mean, I remember a, a Russian colonel took me aside and, you know, and he said, you know, Europe is so ungrateful. We say, we Russia saved Europe three times. We saved them from the Mongols, we saved them from Napoleon, and we saved them from Hitler. And now they're treating us terribly. Now, you can disagree with that analysis, and there's a lot that I can disagree with, um, but it was so heartfelt and so strong. And to sort of see that through their eyes and the the the, the tactile feeling of what they experienced, and then you know, and then so uh, you know, a little bit later, I went to the Russian Army's UN Peacekeeper School, and um, so at a Russian installation, and on the bulletin board there was a in from a Russian newspaper a cartoon about NATO that was represented as a uh, as an Abrams tank pointed at the Kremlin, and that, um, and then somewhere in our uh, in, in in the classroom where we was at, where we, we were in, was a, a Russian leftover from Soviet times definition of NATO as an aggressive Western alliance aimed to destroy, you know, the Soviet Union and Russia, which I had been a war planner in the Second Armored Cavalry Regiment. I knew I was not allowed to make any plans that took place across the east east west German border. The um, so I knew that was not the case, but the fact they, they saw it and they felt it so strongly and that it wasn't just propaganda. Of course, it was propaganda, but it was propaganda based on a feeling that they really had. And uh, so that that influenced me a lot, too, to think about some of the problems that that we face internationally that and how people perceive them is not necessarily coldly analytical or easily broken down into into obvious facts. But you have to sort of. Um, you know, the, the international relations axiom of some schools of international relations that internal politics don't matter and culture doesn't matter. I, I, I reject. I think it's it's pretty clear in terms of it as, an, as a practitioner. It matters a lot. So, 
So, uh, yeah, so ultimately those experiences, because of their ambiguity, led me to leave the active military. Um, I, I decided that I had an ultimate ambition that I'd, I'd spent my time being on the tip of the spear, loved it, it was great. And, uh, you know, I, I liked beating my chest and, and, and acting like a cool guy uh, to the degree that I was. And the, uh, but, um, but I saw that the real, uh, what really mattered was who held the rear of the spear and decided where it was pointed. And, uh, and so someday, because I, I saw a lot of decisions that I thought were bad, um, uh, that someday I wanted to help make better decisions. Whether I as a decision maker, as an advisor, someday that's what I wanted to do. Many folks today believe that uh, the kind of real blockage to better U.S.-Russian relations is Putin. Uh, and anyone who's ever spent any time in Russia or knows anything about Russia thinks it's, that's totally nuts. One of the reasons why is you go back and you look at the 90s and you see that many Russians, including ostensible liberals, were very concerned about um, not just the situation in Yugoslavia, but the way that European and uh, the United States, European uh, countries in the United States were dealing with it, the way that they were um, simplifying a complex situation. Um, and of course, they, they sort of identified with with uh, the Serbs, not not just for co-religious reasons, but for also sort of more complicated historical reasons. And they, they were concerned about um, a humanitarian intervention in Russia, which um, sounds uh, uh, a little bit crazy until you realize that that was sort of a common trope in American fiction uh, in the uh, in that time period. In fact, I was watching, I don't think it's Air Force One. But yeah, I think it is Air Force One, where like the, the, the end of the movie is he basically orders an intervention in Russia. Well, even today, there's that new Amazon movie yeah, where they're doing all that. Yeah, without remorse. And they're doing all these without any reflection at all. Like it would be normal to do these operations in Russia, shooting a bunch of Russian policemen Please, and soldiers yeah. <laughs> as though that, that's yeah. like that's a normal thing that we ought to be doing. I, yeah, it just seems so crazy to me. In your experience, you know, both, both when you're in special forces and then in, in, in at Harvard afterwards, did you get the sense that? you know, that higher headquarters, that, that the folks making decisions had any capability to see this from the Russian perspective, uh, not because the Russians were right, but sheer, surely from a matter of what McMaster called strategic empathy, being yeah. able to accurately predict other people's actions. Um, no, uh, not really. Um, in fact, I was really a bit heartbroken because at the tactical level, we had a really good relationship with the Russians in Bosnia. Now, pulling back, I see a different story than is normally played in the American press. In the American press and the, the story that Richard Holbrook um, put forth was, you know, America you know, went and stopped this war and uh, we ended the war and we brought peace. Well, that's not how I see it. I see it as that we enforced the separation of populations and the demarcation line that the Bosnian Serbs favored. And the Russians, I think, were there to... Uh, support Serb claims to the city of Birchka. Now that hadn't been settled when I was there. And um, so I think we got played a bit in, uh, in our intervention in Bosnia. And I, and I witnessed a lack of energy in bringing justice uh, um, when there were opportunities to capture war criminals that were later captured. Now, maybe that was prudent, uh, prudent decisions because uh, it would have caused all kinds of more unrest than we were willing to handle at the time. But um, we weren't doing what the narrative in the United States said we were doing. We were doing some good things. It was good to stop a war. Lives were saved, absolutely. Um, we established some of the, supported some of the investigations that later 
brought some people to some measure of justice, but by and large, um, I don't think it was uh, what it was. But so, as so to your question, we had great success on the ground and built great relationships, like really close relationships. Uh, but that did not translate to sort of the three star level and above. And I don't think it translated. I don't know, but I don't think it translated on the on the diplomatic side. No, Pete, no, I, I definitely don't think that by and large, there's a lot of strategic empathy. In fact, when I went to to that mission, my in-brief from the uh, um, from the division operations officer was, it's your job to go show the Russians that our way is the right way and uh, and that they need to do it our way. And uh, like they oh, think man. they won World War II, the greatest war that ever happened. Like right or wrong, whether our way was better or not, that's not going to open a lot of doors. The reality is they have a sense of claim to uh, both their former imperial or Soviet territory through which I think are completely illegitimate. And from a Western point of view where countries ought to be able to uh, determine their own destinies is wrong. Um, however, because of the devastation that they've historically experienced for the countries that could provide a buffer for that happening again. And unless we really deal with that and deal with that with respect, uh, it's, I think it's very difficult to make progress. Not that, okay, now I respect you, we're gonna get in a room, we're gonna solve all the problem. That's not gonna work because we have irreconcilable differences. Then there's all the other issues, the kleptocracy, the, you know, and the, the lack of institutions and, the, uh, uh, and everything else that makes Russia so complicated and fascinating um, uh, are all present and, uh, and, and not a shared sense of, uh, of right and wrong. So, um, so the short answer is strategic empathy at the highest level. There are great people who know a lot about Russia who have strategic empathy. I'd, I'd call out uh, Brookings, Fiona Hill, who, who I, I served with at, at the NSC as uh, a, exactly the right person who should, have, who should have that role. And I hope we have people like that later. So, John, you wanted to jump in here with another factor that you think might be worth considering. At another level, you know, um, it being so easy to deploy force, not, you know, not, not just uh, for exercises and stuff, but also to deploy counterterrorism forces um, makes it really easy to use that tool. You know, every, and everything looks like a, if you have a great hammer, the best hammer in the world, everything looks like a nail. Right. Um, that's, well, I guess, I, the concern. Yes. I, th I, I don't think that the nature of soft and the ease of deployment is, uh, is the real problem there. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, um, it, you know, I think it might be a contributing factor, but the real problem is decision-making um, back at home and the difficulty of sort of um, being sophisticated and having a portfolio strategy of what you're trying to accomplish in the world, that if all we're trying to do are military tasks, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Now, if all you have are military resources, that's going to lead to that as well. But um, uh you know, one of the things I've become a bit um, dismayed at, as I as I alluded to earlier, when I became a uh, when we were talking, and uh, became a management consultant with these you know fancy technocratic ideas of how we we're going to solve problems, was uh, endlessly being frustrated and and remain frustrated that it sort of feels like the U.S. government at large can really kind of only do one thing at a time, mm -hmm. and so if the main thrust is 
you know, for for the Trump years in defense, it was about the implementation of the national defense strategy, which emphasized lethality. Now it also emphasized other things, but lethality and how they how they how that became expressed in terms of I don't know how to call it operational competence in waging kinetic war um, that became dominating everything. So in the national defense strategy was also supposed to have an irregular warfare annex. Um, which you know I was a bit familiar with, but all I can say is that 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 other arm um, did not get developed nearly as much. Yeah, they they they, they just released uh, last year. They released the unclassified version of the regular warfare annex. Okay, um, and uh, it's pretty good. And as far as I can tell, it's been dropped like a hot potato, right? Because everyone wants to do the the conventional stuff and and, and not i think because of cultural preferences but because it's really hard and requires a lot of resources and that's where the the focus is but the danger is yep and there's a lot of ideological overhang about it yeah so there's that's true you know if people are going to point at the so-called coinistas or the anti-coinistas or call coin a failure or not a failure and and it becomes it, it gets very messy because the words carry um uh, all this meaning that they really shouldn't have. Like we have irregular challenges in the world and yeah. we need, and, and that's normal. Um, what is not normal is very well-defined military engagements. And we need to be ready for that because it's catastrophic if we lose. But on the other hand, we need to be ready for the challenges that are at hand. And, uh, and so being able to walk and chew gum at the same time is, uh, I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about our ability to do both those things well. Yeah. So we, one, one of the problems facing our, our national security establishment is a, a serious lack of understanding on economic issues. Yes. You know, you can become what you can, many people do, become a four-star general and never have studied economics 101, much less, you know, spent any time inside a private sector organization. Um, and that's a problem, not, not just because private sector does things better. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually... A bit skeptical of the the idea that you're just going to adopt Silicon Valley, ta- you know, ma- management approaches, and that's going to solve your problems. Right. But because so much of what determines um, foreign policy interests and things like the defense industrial base come down to these economic questions. Now, during the Cold War, for better or for worse, we were, we were folks in national security are quite attentive to the economic dimension. How did it come to be that that? that we were out to lunch in economics and the connection between the defense industrial base and national security for so long. The military uh, came to worship at the altar of operational art. And so that the military operation mm-hmm. became the core thing of what they were supposed to do. But as a result of that, uh, strategy was essentially outsourced. Uh, it was outsourced to the civilians. And so I've talked to many military officers. I'm not, I, I won't say that this is the general view of what, uh, how the military thought through the, uh, I'd say the 90s and early 2000s, um, and then into, into the war. But a certain segment felt that our job is to do what the uh, civilians tell us to do. And so we see that now. We see that in, now we have people mainly from the right who are critiquing many of our senior leaders saying essentially, you know, how many wars have you won? And their response is, it's not our job to win wars because the civilians didn't tell us to win it. I think that's completely <laughs> wrong, yeah. right? I think that that the word strategy means the art of the general. 
in, in its early derivation, generals need to be able to do strategy and they need to bring to the table uh, uh, strategic thought and capability around strategic issues. One of those strategic issues is economics. When they think about it, I've been in many planning sessions and rooms where when they talk about economics, what they talk about is sort of having some fun to employ local people to dig ditches to keep them from becoming gorillas. That's not, you know, they don't have an understanding, not that many of us really do, but sort of international bond flows and strategic resources and how those things really drive what, uh, what a lot of these conflicts are about. And, uh, and so that's led to, uh, I don't know if it's a hollowing out, but a lack of capability in thinking about um, sort of basic economic ideas. So I'll give an example. One of the jobs, things I was involved with in the Trump administration uh, were some analysis recommendations about burden sharing. Now, of course, President Trump wanted to ask our allies to pay much more and thought that we, we were um, they were being free or cheap riders and we were paying well more than our share for the benefit that we were getting. Um, as a general idea, I generally believe that is a correct view, although the numbers are kind of messy. So um, we had requests for how much does it cost to have troops on the Korean Peninsula, for instance. And the numbers we were getting were, I, I, don't, I can't go into too many specifics, but the numbers we were getting were very, very low showed no understanding of cost allocation. So they would, so the, the way people would think about how much these things cost would be only the cost of, for instance, housing troops, not including their pay and benefits because the idea being they would be, they could be anywhere, what it costs to house troops on the Korean Peninsula and no allocation of what portion of our uh, satellite constellation, what portion of our intelligence umbrella, what portion of our nuclear umbrella, what portion of our Navy that would come, what portion of the air assets that would come in support. None of those were taken into consideration. And in some conversations, asking those kinds of questions were referred to as unknowable and theology. Well, my response is that, you know, <laughs> basic business college grads and, and cost accountants are doing this many times a day all over the world. No, no large business could function without doing those sort of cost allocations, which admittedly are an art. You can't get down to an exact number of how you should do it. And there's different methods of doing it, activity-based costing and all these other things, which I have a cursory understanding of and no expert at all, but I know they exist. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars and nowhere is there a cost accountant involved in that conversation. The, um, and there's many bureaucratic reasons for not doing that, right? Because, um, you know, I, it, one of my experiences at the NSC was everything was an exercise in Graham Allison's essays of decision. That there was, you know, that you would see mm -hmm. bringing an organizational perspective and a bureaucratic perspective and shaping the number. So, so um, people are not coming with a rational actor view of what's best for the country. And every actor in these decisions has a different timeline that they're thinking about also. There's the permanent bureaucracy, there's military officers who will be there. There's administration people who only think to the end of that particular administration's term or to the next election. The, um, and uh, for all of these reasons, uh, things tend to get very complicated and very difficult in ways that they don't really need to. If we had a better understanding of, in this case, some fundamental economic principles where we can say, you know what, we have a nearly, we have somewhere around a $700 billion 
defense budget, you know, defending the Korean Peninsula has got to be, you know, one of our top priorities. So maybe it's worth a, you know, 10 or 20% of that. So the number ought to be somewhere around 10 or 20% of that. And if it's, you know, only a couple percent of that percentage of that fraction, there's something way off. And so I think there's something way off. Yeah, it's a little bit in the weeds, but this, you know, I've spent a little bit of time uh, working for the army. And uh, one of the astounding things is there's no concept of time cost doesn't exist as far as anyone. Not, not only does it not, it's not factored into any kind of decision making, but as far as I can tell, it's never even been a serious like time allocation study conducted by the army. Right. Um, it's certainly a comprehensive one. Um, so, uh, you know, you see things like you see a PowerPoint, you're like, oh, wow, this is an amazing graph. How'd they do that? And then you realize it's because some captain spent 80 hours, right. uh, solid making one graph for one slide of one presentation because, you know, that was a rational decision <laughs> as far as his superiors were concerned. It's a whole different way of thinking that if you've had experience in the private sector where time is expensive, then you have a very different view of, uh, of how that might work. But for those people whose only background has been uh, within the four walls of, uh, of military life or defense life or government life, um, it, it's hard for them to see it. I, I often say um, you know, people who've only been on the business side view the military either as some kind of Jack Ryan or 24 situation or like Beetle Bailey. Like it's, it, it's extreme, you know, extreme competence or comical incompetence. The, um, whereas people who've only been in the military view the private sector either as sort of money grubbing prostitutes who will do anything for a buck or, you know, um, people in frictionless, you know, perfect environments that can, uh, own, you know, can have the best people around them whenever they choose and make perfect decisions all the time. Nowhere, there's not the in-between the messiness of bureaucratic organizations and uh, in the private sector and, uh, um, and, and that sort of how all those things sort of cross over one another. So there's, there are people when they, when they meet or when they say we need to apply business principles or it's, it's organizations that have no real understanding of what each other does. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone, you know, I think, you know, every, every time I hear a general talk about how they need to bring Silicon Valley to the army, I think you, know, you, should, you should start with like Walmart. You can bring <laughs> Walmart to the army. Massive success. So, Charles, let me zoom out and ask a broader question. The National Security Council. Um, that's a pretty impressive position. But what uh, might surprise our listeners about working there? Um, and what surprised you? when you got there? Um, what did you learn? What did you uh, not expect? And uh, what lessons did you take away from it? Well, I think one of the things that is surprising to people who come to the NSC without working with it very much um, is, is what it really is, that it's a coordinating body. So I think many of us um, imagine that um, the NSC is the pinnacle of where national security analysis and decision-making take place and that there's a lot of deep analysis and that if the military can't come up with a strategy, the NSC can come up with a strategy and, um, and, and those sorts of things. Um, but the NSC is a coordinating body and it's important to remember the NSC is an organization of staff members who report to a staff member who report the, the national security advisor 
who reports to the decision maker. So the, the national security advisor is not a decision maker. And so it's a staff and coordinating body first. So um, sort of kind of getting that and, uh, and seeing how that works is sort of the first, first thing. Um, it was a very, uh, very heady, very interesting uh, place to be. So I was there two years, um, you know, it, it, uh, it never became boring. And I, you know, reminded myself every day that how fortunate I was, I knew I was going to miss it the day that I walked out and I, and I do, you know, some of the things that I think are, uh, would be surprising to outsiders is that roughly 90%, 80 to 90% are people who are detailed from other agencies. They're professionals, not, uh, not political appointees. I was a political appointee at the director level, um, but I was detailed from another agency, the uh, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, now the Development Finance Corporation, um, which is a small government agency. And um, so most of the people you're interacting with are people who have been sent by their agency, probably because they're high potential, probably for uh, around, you know, that they, they have to be sure, the agency has to be sure that person isn't going to embarrass them, but they're not supposed to work for their agency while they're there, but they know they got to go back. So there's a little bit of, um, uh, they do they do need to be attentive that they're not destroying their reputation at their home agency. Um, so there's only really a few political appointees, um, relative few political appointees. Most of the senior directors are, are political appointees. And, um, and they're an extremely high quality group of people, definitely dedicated to getting the uh, getting the answers right. I think as I would think of them and uh, try to think of myself as they're all sort of aspiring statesmen and stateswomen that, uh, um, you know, I think Aristotle sort of express talks about uh, being a statesman and that, and, and in that conception, a statesman is somebody who, sort of called upon to give advice by the by the political leaders um, uh, once they're in power, but they aren't politicians so much themselves. And by and large, the people at the NSC are uh, are like that. And uh, so, uh, especially the director level, it's sort of being an apprentice statesman. Um, I had an extremely fortunate situation in that uh, I was brought in at the very tail end when H.R. Uh, McMaster was national security advisor. I have deep deep admiration for him. I think he is a national treasure. I hope his service to the nation is not over. And, uh, and then also Nadia Shadlow, who is the one who invited me there. Nadia was responsible for putting together the uh, 2017 national security strategy and got it put together and produced it in record time. Uh, it uh, was broadly hailed as one of the best that have been produced. Many of these national security strategies are uh, sort of a jumble of ideas. And uh, hers was not. Uh, the one that she and McMaster put together um, came together with a coherent vision. Wasn't perfect. I think uh, Robert Gates has critiqued it as sort of underselling. A, a, uh, it could have followed through on some strategic ideas, undersold the information component, uh, especially that's become so important in, in, uh, in the recent couple of years. And uh, so, so a lot of the critiques are good, but um, being able to put that together but um, it's not enough to just have a great document. And that at that level, they're very, you're very sensitive to the national security advisor. Um, Ambassador Bolton, uh, he didn't explicitly deviate from the national security strategy. And I think he did a, a good job, particularly in his first year, um, but he had a different set of priorities that he was trying to push through and sort of seeing how that worked 
was very interesting. Um, also the influence of pretty relatively junior people. So they, so someone who's an NSC director has the protocol of a two-star general, but they are really sort of tend to be sort of Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel GS 14 and 15 type of people, sometimes even more junior than that, who will be chairing meetings in the situation room or the situation room annex that's in the um, executive office building and will be shaping the discussion and the, 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 the tools that a, uh, a National Security Council staffer has are, gets to decide who's invited to various meetings on various topics, that's important. Gets to set the agenda, not unilaterally, all this has to be coordinated. Gets to write the uh, minutes um, uh, known as the statement of conclusions afterwards. So gets to emphasize what the most important things were that took place. And, uh, and from that, those things that are agreed to um, can very quickly become policy. So, uh, you know, the influence that a junior NSC staffer can have, uh, like me, um, was, uh, was significant. Uh, I guess the biggest surprise to me was that the OMB, and, and part of my office's job was to be the liaison with OMB, the Office of Management and Budget uh, did not take orders from our instruction from the National Security Advisor and sort of viewed the National Security Advisor's national security strategy as advice and um and you know that they could sort of take or leave when developing the president's budget or establishing the priorities now they were responsive to the white house chief of staff and uh so since mick mulvaney had been director of omb and then was acting white house chief of staff for much of that time they had a, a great deal a great deal of influence and sometimes overshadowed the priorities that you'd think the uh, would come from the National Security Council. So what I learned was that all the charts that I'd learned over nearly 30 years of military service and professional military education of how policy is made, and it all starts with guidance in the national security strategy, and then it all kind of flows down, isn't really true. So That's a nice transition. When you look at why wasn't the administration able to accomplish some of its foreign policy goals, uh, despite the kind of free hand that the president has in foreign policy? Yeah. You know, some folks pushing on the right have highlighted sort of, you know, deep staters and political obstruction, obfuscation as part of that. On the left, there's been a kind of mirror image version of that, of you know, these guardians of the republic preventing the, the big bad orange man from ruining everything. But I think, you know, the truth is is, is a lot more complex. What were some of the, the kind of implementation level challenges that you observed that explained why there was sometimes this gap between um, the, this sort of stated policy or even the written policy in the case of the NSS and actually achieving things? Well, for, for those areas that um, we couldn't really follow through, let me see, I'd say, I'd say there are a few things. One, many of us, me included, underappreciated the role of Congress. So as you mentioned, the free hand that the president has. But in fact, Congress and not, you know, not Congress as a, as a sort of um, singular entity, but specific members and members of staff in Congress have tremendous influence and can do things that uh, can really frustrate things. So I worked on a project to analyze the effectiveness of foreign assistance and make recommendations, foreign assistance review of, uh, with essentially two guiding principles that seemed completely uncontroversial to us who are working on it. One, our foreign assistance ought to work and, be, and we defined work within what's defined in the national security strategy of what we're trying to accomplish. And two, that it doesn't help our adversaries or enemies 
uh, more than it helps us. That, that seems to be pretty obvious to me. And so, and if we're doing things that fall into either of those two categories, we probably should do something different or just stop doing things at all. Well, this became massively controversial and uh, was leaked in the press. And then it was picked up by Congress. We were admittedly not doing well in terms of consulting others on this thing. And the reason why is because we didn't want to get it derailed. Um, and Congress actually put it in a law that recommendations from the, National, the, from the Foreign Assistance Review cannot be implemented without review by Congress. Uh, similarly, Amazing. it took uh, nearly half a year to get it through review at the Department of Justice after it had been approved in a, in a um, principles committee by all of the, or the immediate representatives of the heads of the cabinet departments and the other major departments who are involved. You know, we could probably write a case study on, on how to not do something and the way we handled that. And uh, and I learned a, 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 an awful lot of lessons. And uh, I, I still think something like that needs to be done. But I, there were just so many interests in doing, uh, in continuing to do things that could not be proven had a positive effect. Now, I want to be clear. There are some things in American foreign assistance, especially most clearly, are contribution to combating AIDS in Africa that is a glory of American foreign policy. And all Americans should be very proud and happy about the things that we do. The trouble is many of the other things, we actually couldn't find any data that said it worked. And in some cases, so imagine funding a country that has um, important influence by a uh, guerrilla organization or terrorist organization or terrorist related organization that, um, and, and you give aid to that country and you know that that terrorist organization is gonna tax that aid. So you essentially you're funding your enemy or other frustrating areas like in Central America. So we have great compassion for the poverty and violence that people who live in Central America have. Of course, in our administration, we wanted to re reduce or eliminate the uncontrolled Northern migration of uh, large numbers of people. And the heads of those countries wanted the same thing. We had large aid packages going to these and President Trump sort of pulled the plug on those and said, we're not, we're not going to do these. And I heard the analysis on outlets like NPR that said, well, it's ridiculous to stop the aid because the whole purpose of the aid is to create conditions that people don't want to move north. And I 100% agree with that. That is the purpose of the aid. The trouble is it didn't work. So, you know, I always had in my mind while we were going through this, that what the standard we should have is that when we're giving foreign assistance, we should be able to go and explain why an amount of foreign assistance equivalent to every tax dollar that an underemployed industrial worker in the middle of the United States is paying in taxes for his whole life, the, um, that I ought to be able to look that person in the eye and give them a good reason of how we're spending that money. And in so many cases, I felt we couldn't do that. And not being able to really dent that um, was sort of a big problem. Uh, so that's, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's one, a really good example. Lessons. That's really compelling example. There's a funny you mentioned about the funding terrorism. There was a great duffel blog um, post the other day. Uh, quote: Taliban calls emergency meeting after U.S. its largest donor pulls funding. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, though. There's a lot of that to go around. There's a lot of that to go around. <laughs> um, so I, I, I have only one more question before we go. So as our as our uh, listeners will be happy to hear, I'm sure you'll be joining us as a visiting fellow this year at the Center for Study of Statesmanship. 
And I know, I know one of the things you are interested in exploring is this question is that how do you protect your country and protect your soul? So, you know, especially as America moves into kind of very complex, very, very murky geopolitical terrain in the 21st century, what's your kind of answer to that question? How did you navigate uh, your faith and your, you need to take a hard eye look at some of these challenges? Right. I want to study how to get to an answer because I don't, I don't have a clear answer. Um, you know, most of the training that I've had in the military, yes, adhering to military professional ethics, but when it comes to foreign policy, tends to come from a realist lens that says, you know, it's interests of what matter and, uh, and you gotta put values aside and sort of Machiavellian view that states are not people, states don't have souls and you have to be able to do bad to do good. And to some degree, I kind of, you know, I have a lot of sympathy with that. What I discovered is that in my mind, I somehow did a switch that most of the time I'm kind of a virtue ethics kind of person. So I'm, you mentioned my faith. So I'm a Catholic. I take that very seriously. I've taken it more seriously over the past, you know, five years or so. And so, uh, so I have sort of a virtue ethics thing, but as soon as sort of we get to the issue of war, I become very utilitarian. Uh, I've, I've said many times elsewhere that in the cold war, all the mistakes the United States has done can, you know, are almost justified because we stopped you know, uh, rampant communism that's responsible for roughly 100 million deaths in the 20th century. You know, when you stop 100 million deaths, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes. And, uh, but that's not, that's not really adequate. I don't think that's in a, a right way. How do I, you know, I found that that was my habit of mind, but I don't think that's right. So the biggest challenge I had during the Trump administration, mm -hmm. so first of all, I was often challenged by friends and family on the left who opposed, opposed President Trump sort of by how, how can I serve this man who they found morally reprehensible? My response was, first of all, my boss is the Constitution. I serve the Constitution, I serve the American people. The minute I'm asked to do something that I think is wrong, very wrong, so there's a degree that as a faithful servant, I have to do things that I might not agree with, but if I find them you know, really morally wrong, then I have to be able to leave. And I was never confronted with that sort of dilemma. Secondly, I don't think President Trump was elected to be my uh, my son's Boy Scout leader, right? It, it, I didn't look for him for look to him for moral guidance. I looked to him for guidance mm -hmm. in foreign policy, which is the area that I was applying my professional expertise to help the country as best I could. And I thought, in general, that the vast majority of his policies were ones that I agreed with, and. And also the alternative, which came from the other party, were ones that I thought were very wrong and I did not agree with. So it's not like I have a choice between whatever I'm actually doing in practical life and a perfect situation. There was no perfect alternative. Um, and I think the biggest place that I had trouble squaring it was when there was so much press about um, migrants and the kids in cages controversy. And how could I support a... Mm an administration that would treat people all that badly. Now, I have to admit, I didn't dig into it especially strongly, so I don't know exactly what the circumstances were. I'm sure that human beings were treated without the dignity that they deserve, and we should treat people with the dignity they deserve. Now, I'm, I'm a believer in strong borders. I'm a believer in curtailing illegal immigration, irregular immigration. I think we should I think refugees, if they're refugees, should stay as close to their country as they can so that they can return when their need to seek refuge is over. And we should help stop the need to seek refuge. Um, 
and similarly with, uh, with certain forms of political asylum. And I think we're a very generous country that legally takes in a million people a year, more than any other country, and you know has capacity. And um, and I love the all that the world brings to uh, to our country. So, but that did you know that did sort of strike me. And I never found an easy, easier, clear answer on how to how to address that kind of problem when if something that's happening is morally wrong. It's not necessarily in my direct lane, my lane of responsibility, but it is something that that might be wrong, and um, and what could be done about it. Now, what I saw was people working very hard to relieve that situation, and we came up with solutions that that um, very much uh, mitigated um, that particular situation. But those kinds of questions are the ones that I think bothered me then and would continue to bother me. And also there's the, you know, I mentioned, you know, I say, I think I'm the kind of person who will, um, if I'm faced with a real dilemma, be ready to walk. Um, I hope that's true. Um, I know that um, when I've come close in other walks of life to being close to that test, um, I've done pretty well, but not always as well as I wish I had. And I've seen other people compromise a lot. And I know that I'm vulnerable to doing that. So I pray, I ask for strength. I try to, uh, um, try to try to do things as well as I can. But how does one be a moral statesman? I think that I think thinking through that is probably what I'll be thinking about for several years to come. Yeah, and, and it, in order to, to, to do the right thing in that situation, it depends on cultivating certain virtues, certain inner dispositions, you know, this isn't a matter of, of following a rule book, right? Almost precisely because the situations right. we're talking about are ones in which there are temptations, there are ambiguities. Um, and, you know, one of the things I think that the Catholic moral tradition brings to the table is a recognition that that's, uh, as uh, Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Yes. Um, and so it requires this sort of this, this, this cultivation of virtue, divine and natural virtue, in order to, um, to live excellently. Um, so, Charles, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. And uh, we look forward to having you at the center this year. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, what comes this year and, um, and continuing these sorts of talks offline. We've been speaking with Charles McLaughlin, a lifelong practitioner of American foreign policy, and with Jonathan Askinus, an assistant professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Encounters is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and at our website, css.cua.edu. Thanks for listening. Until next time.